Coming up, in national news, protesters tear down statues in Portland. In our lifestyle section, we ask, you want to sit in something? How about sitting in discomfort? In our arts feature, we challenge you to get out there and protest by seeing art. In Money Talk, you'll learn who is holding all that money and how you can get some of it. Hello and welcome to Secret Architecture, the process of process. My name is George Stave and I'm the Artistic Director of Stave Dance, an Atlanta-based contemporary dance company, and I'll be your host for this 10-part series. Through dynamic conversations with artists of all kinds from across the country, we're going to explore arts and culture as invisible and benevolent dictators, all while we break ourselves open and ponder the unanswerable. One of my guests is someone who is directly responsible for a profound shift in stave dance and is a source of light and inspiration to literally anyone who crosses paths with them. Currently the director of the Regional Arts and Culture Council in Portland, Oregon, Madison Cario, was the inaugural director of the Office of the Arts at the Georgia Institute of Technology. This position was very much in keeping with other senior level roles they have held prior to the shift to Atlanta. Madison has been an influential voice at the East Bay Conservation Corps in Oakland, the Painted Bright Arts Center in Philadelphia, and the highly regarded Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts. Not to mention, Madison also served a pivotal role as an esteemed advisor to the New England Foundation for the Arts, as well as the MAP Fund, which is also nationally recognized. On a personal note, one could assume that a gatekeeper of sorts might have a mysterious filter through which art is assessed and processed. And in this case, nothing could be further from the truth. What makes Madison, to me, a powerful and endearing voice is their unmistakable passion for art and delights in the way it intersects many lives, elevates diverse voices, and calls to question the devastating role of apathy. Madison accepts nothing than personal bests and is living proof that diligence is a noble trait. Thank you so much, George. I appreciate that. Uh, it's wonderful. And you know what else is wonderful? My other guest, <laughs> which is Nikki Estes, a woman who has elevated her own role as a presenting and touring director for South Arts over the last 25 years. Yeah, it's an extraordinary organization. And her educational background substantiates her robust career in that she holds a BA in Arts Administration and an MPA for Nonprofit Management, both from the Georgia State University. With such a wide and diversified focus, Nikki has been especially driven to enhance the perception of the arts in the South, and as such is responsible for managing well over $600,000 in grant funding, and at the same time interfaces with over 25 presenters in the Southeast. She has been a highly sought-after panelist for many funding organizations, such as the National Endowment for the Arts, the Alabama State Council on the Arts, Georgia Council for the Arts, Kentucky Arts Council, Louisiana Division of the Arts, Mississippi Arts Commission, South Carolina Arts, a bunch of them. And I should probably say the Woodruff Arts Center, because that one's really, really fancy. And um, I'd also like to share a personal story of my first interaction with um, 
Nikki. And it, that was when I was very new to the funding world. I remember nervously dialing the phone number to uh, South Arts and spoke to Nikki, expecting a godlike or Wizard of Oz voice. And what I was met with was such a kind and gentle spirit and someone who was so generous with her time. And it totally changed that one moment in how I perceived funders and organizers of granting organizations. So, Nikki, it, you're a gem, and thank you for being here. I see you a lot, and it's still never enough. Thank you. So, but I'd like to just get started with, in terms of how your careers have been shaped and how you look at the world of the arts. And it's sort of a, a sticky question, but uh, you're both involved in organizations that have many different arts foci, I might say. Have you been able to discern for yourselves uh, what falls under entertainment for you and what might be art? Are they one and the same? Is there more nobility in one over the other or or not? Uh, well, for me, art goes deeper than entertainment. You know, it's just media. Um, there's more there. It's hard to, it's hard for me to put into words the, the real difference, but I think that art really pushes and moves you, um, moves you to think or act. It's more transformative. And I recently heard Bill T. Jones say art should be dangerous. I don't want my art to be hard. To, I want my art to be hard to digest. You know, the question is, does everyone have an appetite for this? That's right. I do. I mean, I like to be challenged, but not everyone is like that. Nikki, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And whew, COVID has, 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 <laughs> brought, has brought a whole whole lot of change to to the world and to how I move in the world. And one of the things that I um, realized as I sat where where you sit, Nikki, and and I was really very adamant supporter for that art and entertainment are different things and they have different purposes and that's good. And we need that wide range because we have a wide range of people in this country. And yet um, one of the hugest successes that we've had out here is by reaching across the aisle from the nonprofit mm -hmm. side to the for-profit side. And in COVID, we are all out of business. <laughs> in COVID, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. That's all, true. <laughs> we are all not working. And so in that place of COVID, um, I was able to reach across the aisle and talk to uh, independent venues coalition and say for-profit, non-profit, entertainment, art. Right now, we are very similar. And so in that bonding moment, right, so that was really profound um, because we were arguing so much about how different it was. And uh, right now it feels very much the same. We have artists and arts organizations and entertainers who are all um, scrambling and some have different levels of support so to acknowledge that. But um, I love the idea and the conversation around having differences between arts and entertainment as we look at this country and pull itself apart <laughs> over and over again. This is one of those lines. And I wonder what happens if we dip in um, to these different pools and we start blurring the lines a little bit. Can we build bridges if we take away the word art and entertainment in just a second? Yeah. I love that because 
you know, what you said, Madison, is so true. And one of the things that I think we struggle with as funders or as panelists, you know, this is a hard balance. Our communities are so diverse and they need different things. And should we say, you know, this is right for your community, this is art, or this isn't arty enough, or this is the, high, the artistic quality isn't high enough. What does artistic quality mean? How are we, you know, how do we place value on that for different communities? And so um, I think it is blurring a lot more now. And I think that's a good thing. There are very few people advantaged uh, and privileged the way the two of you are in having your hands equally full with both ideas, having seen both and responsible for promoting or presenting both, my assumption, through Georgia's, uh, Georgia Tech as well as through South Arts. I learned a very interesting thing during a call that uh, Nikki helped facilitate that a lot of theaters will use their big ticket things such as the Tour of Wicked to help fund Uh, and produce smaller organizations. That said, I'm curious that when you both run across language, and I'm not asking you how to write a grant, but are you able to poke holes through the things that are using buzzwords to acquire, to reach into the hearts of people? And your gut is saying, I don't think this is going to hit the mark. What I am feeling and hearing and seeing from other funders and from the community asking um, us as the Regional Arts and Culture Council what, um, what and, and, to, and not asking, telling us what they need. What I'm seeing is less and less trying to fit the box or play the game, if you will, and more about uh, some more directness on all sides. So funders, let's simplify this. You need money, you make work. We need inspiration, hope, uh, a way to belong and connect and come together. And um, so I see many um, funders and and applicants actually dropping the, I don't want to say game because it's all very serious and very thoughtful, but I, I feel like it's become more accessible and simple and simplifying deliverables and letting I'm really excited by letting artists and arts organizations judge their own success. Um, that's, that is really radical and, and lovely. And we see it, you know, we see it on the street when you look, you can't look anywhere in any city or, or rural town and not see artists responding to what is with or without funding. They are present. They are connecting us. They are collecting us. They are telling the stories. They are um, challenging us as they should. Um, and, 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 and also, but challenging us with hope. Right. So I feel like the words on the page have become radically simpler and that's the goal. I mean, we still have to figure it out because as a funder, which I will say this is the hardest job I've ever had in my life, is to give away money. Um, and I've been on all sides of the table, but it's more than money, right? So that's the other piece I would just want to throw in here is that, that money is not going to change the, the, the systems that are in place, the racism, the, the, the structure that we built, and nor is it enough to survive. Like it's, it's, we have to shift away from thinking about money as the answer to all and, and go back to investment and community and connection. And, and, and there's no one that does it better than artists and creatives. I completely agree. I would say that when you read words on a paper, um, if you read an application or proposal, it comes through um, whether a project is authentic um, thoughtful, um, because of 
the writing skills and you can feel if something just isn't quite right or it doesn't, everything mm. doesn't add up or make sense. Panelists say that many times during discussions um, that it just doesn't seem like it's, it's well thought out or the plan is in place. However, you know, as we've learned and been able to talk about more is that we're all different communicators. Um, you know, you have proposals being submitted by multi-million dollar organizations and you have proposals being submitted by volunteer run organizations. <laughs> and so there's a huge disparity there. And there's also the digital divide a lot, particularly in the Southern region. And so what we're considering now is, as Madison said, it's not just about funding, but the process of applying and the um, structure structural changes or institutional changes that comes behind that. So we're considering um, ideas such as maybe we shouldn't just allow written responses. Maybe we should allow video or audio responses. And, yes. um, and also just because panelists also, they, you know, I learn differently than another panelist learns and reads things differently. And so allowing for that flexibility for people to be able to communicate and share how they feel they are best representing themselves. But as Madison said, there are so many funders right now that are focusing on how to make funding more equitable and inclusive. You know, the Ford Foundation, the Andrew Mellon Foundation, even South Arts. For us, the change is slower. Um, you know, it's, it's a slow process. We're doing a lot of listening. We're doing a lot of research. Um, but it is encouraging to see that there is so much attention happening now with supporting artists and arts organizations that have historically been left out of funding sources and who's being currently left out of relief resources. So I feel like this is a great time for lots of funders to reconsider how their funding is structured, to rethink what the priorities are. Um, it just feels like this is the time. It, this is the time for this to happen, yeah. and it makes the most sense. Yes, and and I want to reflect back to something you started us with, George. You said of both Nikki and I um, that you felt differently after you talked to us about um, about funders, right? And so, like, yeah. there's an invitation there. So this is part of the work as funders. Um, that we do this high touch, that we answer the phone or we answer an email or a chat or an Instagram or whatever. Like, am I, can I apply for this? I want to do this well. How do, is this for me? And so to take that high touch route that is, has always been essential, but even more so now I, 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 I see it playing out and, and thank you for reflecting that because you felt that years ago. I did. And it's, uh, it's remarkable to me because, uh, when you watch NPR and these names start rolling by the screen, Mellon Foundation, Doris Duke, and you have this impression of what really sits at the helm. And it's, I admit some of it's my naivete, but I would look as growing up as a, a dancer, looking at these entities and thinking, if only. Yes, if only. 
This is spoken by many of my peers, those who aspire for funding from reputable organizations. And with that aspiration comes the cost and labor of getting that damn application into someone's inbox. Not sure if you're aware, but if you want to be funded by an organization like the National Endowment for the Arts, you essentially have to think ahead three years. What is it do you want to do? Who will be involved? How long will it take you? What are the nuances of your rehearsal process? And on and on and on. Kind of flies in the face of creating artistic work that seems to want to drive itself. But nevertheless, the work has to be done. We discuss the ways funders are simplifying their applications or the application process, which is fantastic and to me suggests that the fiscal support status quo could be crumbling a little. We later engaged in dialogue about demographic-specific art and where lasting and, hard to say, monetary value might lie. Does it lie within art that casts a wide net to attract a larger audience? Or is it art with a clear-cut focus for a specialized community, a clear demographic? Is that better? Or can they both live at the same time, which currently does? So we pick up uh, with those ideas and also diving into the idea of whether or not activist art can work, as in, can it fulfill its hopes to activate a community? That's a, that's a great question, George. I mean, I will say that I think, again, it's my answer is not any different than this idea of who's the art for. I think my job is to provide resources and stages and microphones um, and connect people to each other through through artists and artist words. Um, the change, the change will happen. The, the change is individual. It is community based. It is um not stoppable. I can make sure that that artists and creatives and and people who don't even think that uh, cares money is for them or grant money is for them or all the other opportunities out there. Uh, I think our job as, as as funders is to make sure that we reach further and further and further with each call and say yes, you in rural Oregon and rural Georgia because we are coming apart between the urban and the rural, and we've known this for a long time. And and so, yes, we can reach a little bit further. We can bring more money, bring more resources, bring more connectivity um, to the conversation, and then just let the conversation happen. Well, you know, I think that it's important for different voices to come into the conversation. I think it helps us to be better, do better, do different, And, you know, we are all comfortable talking right now to each other about art, Um, but talking to someone who um, is a politician or a social worker or a family member and seeing how they respond to that work, I think is uh, wonderful to see, Um, not just from my perspective, but I think also from an artist's perspective and from um, the participant. And I think that's really important. So having a space um, for that type of exchange, I think is important. Can you both recall a transformative piece that you've seen, something that shifted, not necessarily your political thinking, but maybe shifted an aesthetic? So many. I'll, I'll go to, to, to one of my, my favorites, which is Senkai Juko 
at the Annenberg Center long before I knew that I was going to um, be in the arts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I don't recall how I actually ended up at this performance, but I sat there and I watched something that moved impossibly beautifully slow and it changed my whole way of thinking about movement, about dance, about art, about what is possible. Um, it was really a transformative. I mean, I felt really lucky uh, and blessed to have stumbled upon it because it wasn't, it wasn't a planned activity. So, so all of those moments were for me, it's about surprise and wonder and, just another aha. Like I, I, I didn't know there could be so much detail and so much emotion expressed in such small movement. I um, also have a dance experience, um, yeah. which was later in life. Well, I mean, it is I, the I best was form for this. <laughs> Are you a little biased, George? No, not at all. <laughs> I remember it was a work that was performed outside, and it was. I think I was really new to experiencing work in outdoor spaces or non-traditional, you know, not in a theater space. And it was just so beautiful. And also um, it was modern work, you know, and I had traditionally um, seen work in theater spaces and ballets, um, even modern ballets. But this was contemporary modern, a modern dance company. And I just loved it. I just loved the way it made me feel. Um, I loved how different the bodies looked in an open space. And, um, and kind of ever since then, I've, I would seek out that type of work mm-hmm. and, uh, and try to see it as much as possible. We do talk about preciousness in art and art making. What is your stance on it? Is, uh, should it be precious or do you subscribe to the idea that everything is going to be destroyed on this planet at one point or another? Do you keep it precious? Do you let it come and go like the fall colors on a tree? There is something to to be said about archiving um, and knowing the history and being able to reference that. So to me, it's important to have the history of work, whether it is a Picasso or if it is Alvin Ailey's Revelations, because I think it's important for artists and communities to know how and where things were developed. Um, I don't think it should be put locked in a vault. It's that precious, but I think it's important. And I think it's something that is a new, maybe a newer movement in dance to archive because it's, you know, probably very challenging. Yeah, I, w- I would echo that. I mean, the bond notation only goes so far. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I, I I like this idea of balancing this. Um, I think archiving is super important, especially now um, as we are losing so much work and so much culture, whether it's climate change or just uh, lack of interest. I think COVID is going to do its thing on mm-hmm. a whole um, body, different bodies of work and different um movement scores, if you will. So I think it is important for us to get in the habit of archiving, but not archiving for archiving's sake, but archiving to be in conversation with community. So one of the things that was really, has been really profound about monuments coming down here in Portland, um, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and things that have been taken down 
by um, by protesters is the conversations that happen the next morning over those pieces are so profound. So at once the work was held precious for a long time, right? These monuments have been up for over a hundred years, and and even in their falling. That's where another whole conversation is beginning, and that's a, a performance in itself, you know? isn't it? Right. And so, like, what do we do with these conversations? But I think, you know, I'm I am super excited by the opportunities here in Portland in that we are are interested in having that conversation instead of just disappearing those racist pieces. It doesn't make it go away. And I right. think art's job is to continue to remind us of where we were where we came from and there's shame in that right and there and, and there's a lot of weight in in a lot of this work um and 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 who decided and who was risen up as a monument and and what is that saying to everyone that walks by right mm-hmm. um i think it's really important to to be aware of that and then the idea of preciousness i mean i think that makes it precious right on some level and it also makes it how do we flip that and turn it and, and, and have conversation, right? Can we have conversation about um, revelations without um, upsetting, right? And, and maybe we can't, but you know what, maybe it's time we, we sat in our discomfort around these things and had these conversations and it, and to deny that it ever existed or it happened is, is not going to get us, further along. It's not going to advance the form or the conversation. And so I really appreciate, um, it's kind of, for me, it's a yes. And yes, we should remember, um, whose work we're standing on. Like everything is in response to everything before it. Um, so to remember context is really important. And, and what does that mean about what's next and, and who gets to talk about it? Right. Like who gets to talk about what was and and what is. And so I think it's a really exciting and terrifying time for for the arts, but also for for conversation. And and how can art move out of the art world, which it has done. When George Washington was taken down, it wasn't a bunch of artists and art historians standing around the sculpture going, Oh, I don't know, what do you think? It was people. (laughs) It was just people and they didn't consider themselves necessarily um, art consumers or artists or even part of the arts com- community. And yet it was over the art that we came together again. So I'm so excited by pulling out maybe some of those things that are, um, are racist or are misogynistic or are based on, on a different time. And what happens when we share them now? Like, what can we do with that? And what a wonderful, rich opportunity uh, to to grow. Right. And when you talk about elitist or class, I think the environment that we're in now has shown artists and arts organizations that we, they have a much larger audience than their building and the, you know, the artwork, you know, with the security guards and that we all, we need each other and it can be enjoyed by so many different audiences in new and different ways. And I think that's very exciting. Um, and I'm looking, and I feel like, um, because of where we currently are and right now in our world, um, with, um, social justice, with politics, with COVID that we are going to see, I'm hopeful that there are a lot of barriers that are going to come down for 
accessing arts and we're not talking about funding, but participation and um, inclusion, all of those things I think are going to be very rich on the other side of this um, year to, to yeah. <laughs> I don't want to put a time limit on it, but yeah. I feel like in the end um, there's going to be real change. And I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to benefit the arts community. Seriously, aren't they the best? I mean, Despite my steadfast negativity, Madison and Nikki tore down arbitrary walls of protection and by their joyous and hopeful expressions, which I was able to see, I was moved, brimming with excitement and feeling newly focused on possibility. Not that you asked, but this is how I came to know both of them. And years later, here they are, the same, if not more energized. We moved into the fact that as funders and arts leaders, they are able to see the horizon and are almost charged with seeing the horizon. And as gifted as they are, they're able to see even tiny details inside this horizon. Um, Well, I I wanna go back just a little bit to this place of privilege that, so the fact that I can see horizon is a place of privilege. That's an important starting point to answer your next question, right? So when you don't know if you have enough money to pay the bills as an artist, you can't see horizon, right? So I just want to be really sure that we recognize where and meet people where they are. Um, there will be folks who can see horizon and can see about pivoting and they can see about virtual. I mean, George, you know me, holograms, virtual reality, mixed reality. I've been involved in love this stuff long before it was a necessary. Um, I it think was so your, far. as the French would say, the raison d'etre at Georgia Tech. I mean, That's you right. were interested in merging as much as you could. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it connects us deeper to each other Mm -hmm. because the first thing that happens when you take off those VR goggles is you turn to the nearest person and you're like, oh, my God, did you see this? (laughs) You hear that? Was it right? So I think it drives us back together. Um, But Horizon is important. And and the future. Well, you know, I'm seeing a lot of different things uh, happen across the country and and I'm hearing different things. So there's there's there are are, um, groups of organizations and forms that are they're like, let's just wait this out. That's that's a strategy. And there's different strategies. There's some that are like, let's um, try to do some stuff differently. Let's try this digital thing. Let's see what's this translation. How do we maintain our art form? Um, there are some who are like, we're just going to do nothing until someone tells us what to do. And then some are just, we're not going to do this anymore, period. So there's a whole range of, as you would expect, of, of experiences, emotions. And there is a huge vacuum of leadership, I will say, that we know at the national level, there has been no help and support uh, in terms of COVID and how to deal and when will it end. The states are all responding very differently. It's really interesting to be still connected to Georgia and Atlanta and, and to be in Oregon and Portland, right? And and the, the two states are, are radically different in how they've dealt with COVID and what their response is. And, um, and I hear it mostly through my son, who's very frustrated that he can't do all the things that his friends are doing in Atlanta. Um, and so I think, again, it is about um, taking some time to meet people where they are. I've seen organizations totally pivot and do really well. And there's organizations who are making more money now than they've ever made. 
home and I see organizations that are gone. So I think that um, I can't see clear from where I'm sitting as to what the solution is. I think the solution is to stay in conversation. This is part of it, this convening. So thank you, George, Nikki, and for these other podcasts, because I think this is where people hear um, ideas, hope. Uh, maybe I should connect with this group. I think shared resources, which is a nothing new. We've been talking about it. Is a good idea. You know, my, my dance, I called it my dance rant. Um, and back then everything was closed. And I was like, um, well, dance could just move into all the stadiums because that's the right ratio of people. Dance could be on the drive-in. Thing. So <laughs> it was very easy and simple, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not running a dance company. I'm not trying to get that engagement level. Um, I'm doing a different thing. And, and that time passed, you know, sports came back and they have the money to come back in a radically different way. So you have to go where you're comfortable to some extent because um, you have your board, you have your audience, you have your people to take care of, your communities. Um, but I do think part of this, and, and, and this has never changed for me with or without COVID, um, art is essential to everyday life. And, and I don't want to argue it. I just want to state it. It just is. It's a fact. Art is essential to our recovery, to our healing, um, to, you know, decriminalizing race in the country. Um, it is everything. So with that as like the, the, the hat that sits on my head, what then do I say? to politicians and to artists. Um, that's my approach. And again, I have the privilege of having that position to, to claim that space. So beyond that, um, we need thoughtful, intentional integration of creative workers into every fabric of society. Cause we're just going to keep making the same decisions, transportation or sidewalks or <laughs> whatever it is. We've talked about this, George. Like, why yeah. don't they hire choreographers to help in airports? Yeah, with, with, with <laughs> movement scores and ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and until we can actually embrace the in, the inherent um, skills in every embodied in an artist, not in the art that they make, but just in the that what they have learned, and and what is that hourly rate? Nikki and I have talked about this in the past, like ask any artist what their hourly rate is. And most often they'll be like, well, it depends. <laughs> it's true. And it How that, much you like, got? <laughs> right. It can't depend. I love and appreciate the fact that you brought up privilege and that perspective. Um, and we all have different perspectives. And so what I think um, to answer George's question, what we should be doing is really just simple. I feel like we should, do better and be better, whatever that mm-hmm. means in your little corner of the world or your huge, you know, office corner, what that means. And, um, you know, change is not easy, but everything is changing right now and everything is on the table, literally everything. And so just be encouraged, you know, have the courage to try something new to do something different. I feel like there's something really magical that happened already between the two of you and responding, do better, be better. And what uh, Madison was saying earlier about sitting in the discomfort, because 
at the height of, of the fever pitch of any social movement or anger or reform transition, we'll say, um, it can be easy to do nothing because you're not sure what the right thing would be to do. And you do something and somebody might not agree with it. And maybe that's okay. You tried and don't be afraid of that tough conversation. Say you did XYZ post and put it out there. And somebody was like, mm, not so much that. Well, great. The door is wide open and let's just talk about it because sometimes silence can be the worst. What you don't say is sometimes more damaging, I think, than what you do say. And I think we have to, particularly as funders, I think that we have to be more comfortable with failures to um, not necessarily encourage it, but be okay if something doesn't work out um, because you can learn, you can still learn from that. And I think I just want to go back. You know, I think we hear we heard that phrase a lot. Do better, be better. We've seen them all in the statements mm -hmm. and they all came out. Every, <laughs> yeah. every organization came out with one. Um, I think. But when you say that and you put it in writing, there is accountability there. And that will That's lead right. to change. It's my hope. Mm -hmm. So even if you're if I'm not doing better and I'm not being better, but I've just said in this podcast, someone would challenge me and say, I heard you say this. Well, what are you doing? Tell me. How are you being better? How are you doing better? Yeah. What yeah. are you doing different? Look at the two of you. And certainly, uh, like I said, you, your hearts and your minds and your eyes and your hands <laughs> slash pocketbooks uh, are open. Right. And so and your public figures and people certainly align you with institutions and like, ooh, if I were buddy buddy with Nikki, maybe da 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 da. I'm sure that can get tiring after a while, but because uh, you've both recognized the, the value of living lies in art. And so how are you fed? And so what, because I, I think about the, that book, the giving tree, and it's a really beautiful book. I gave it to my mother, my late mother, and she was a giver, 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 giver. And mm -hmm. now that she's gone, I've wondered how was she fed? Um, how are you this two works. fed? How are both of you fed? Seeing my peers and being able to talk. To yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, yeah. yeah. This is really important I for me. And I would have, the other thing I would say is yeah. call your funders, email them. I respond to every single inquiry. I make no decision <laughs> on grants. So, like, I don't, I don't she actually does. do that. But I will listen and I will, I will, I will assist. I will get you to where someplace where someone can help you. Right. So if you have a question, if you're angry, tell me, tell me all the things. So like, I think that is where I get energy too. It's, it's in the silence that it gets scary. It's like, I'm not hearing anything. Um, well, what gives me energy is innovation, saying something, not necessarily something completely new, but maybe seeing it in a different way that I hadn't received it before gives me energy, um, deep, meaningful connections, not just personally, but um, with others that don't even involve me. And um, kind of bringing it back home to the South and South Arts, I love that the South is getting some attention now. You know, we are, it is great to see because there have been so many misconceptions about art in the South. And I feel like this is our time. We're getting more time. French modernism 
when it began 1914, 1950, really worked hard to abolish what was called the California culture, which to the French meant things were really disposable or something like a lamp or a couch was perceived as being artful and necessary. But the French would say, why couldn't a life well lived be a work of art? Or why can't a life be a work of art? So as I reflect on Nikki and Madison, truly, I look back at them and think, yeah, truly their lives in and of themselves are works of art. They receive the joys, the sorrows, the hopes, the demands from artists clawing at their shins, asking for recognition. And as you could hear the compassion in their voices, they just want everyone to succeed literally everyone and knowing them for as long as I have this enthusiasm and the love that they have for the work that they do is 100% genuine there's no ifs ands or buts about it they are driven and focused kind of like they were plucked out of thin air to serve this purpose on this planet and as somebody who lives in the south and makes work in the south I've got to say extraordinary advocates for all of us who are dedicated to enriching the art scene down here Henry David Thoreau once said, or wrote in his book, Walden, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. And Nikki and Madison are the foundation builders, those people who help you see the impossible, help you realize the impossible, actually. And as you heard, they really believe, as do I, there is enough room on this planet to accommodate all of the art that needs to be made. Kind of reminds me of something that Stephen Wright, stand-up comedian, said. Say the universe is expanding. That should help with the traffic. <laughs> and obviously, it should help with our art as well. Thank you for tuning in. I'd like to, of course, once again, and always thank Jacob Chisenhall, the incredible producer and mastermind behind editing, compiling, and whittling down robust information into this concise half hour. Incredibly talented Ben Coleman for the music and the entire team at Stave Dance for supporting this. And of course, our guests who generously give their time. Tune in next week. And until then, magical ahas. Amazing insights be yours. My name is George Stave, your host for Secret Architecture, the Process of Process.